0: Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. Okay, he's been tossed into a pit and sold into slavery. Now, as we, as we come into the story this morning, we find that he is finally in Egypt. Interesting note, right, on the nation of Egypt, it is a nation that is saturated in idolatry. We're talking local gods, we are talking cosmic gods, we are talking Pharaoh who is in and of himself considered by the people to be a god. For Joseph, this is without a doubt major culture shock. Verse one uh, describes for us his entrance into Egypt in like just really just a, a few words, but we can imagine that as as Joseph, having gone through what would best be described as a a quite turbulent and traumatic ordeal, walks into Egypt and he is wide eyed. Right, he's surrounded by. Uh, Just like mass, like this huge place, saturated in idolatry. We observe culture shock, as we would imagine from Joseph as we transition into this scene. However, through it all, there is, in Genesis chapter 39, this constant emphasis on the presence of the Lord a presence that serves to shape our perspectives while informing our reaction this is what we're going to work through this morning the way that our understanding of the presence of the Lord shapes our understanding or our perceptions of the world and life circumstance and how this presence then informs our reaction okay so here's what we're saying we're going to be talking a lot about presence of the Lord because Moses talks a lot about presence of the Lord here in Genesis 39. What we are going to say, what I'm going to spend the next few minutes building a case for, is that the presence of the Lord has to shape our perspective and inform our reactions. A thesis that I want us to consider this morning as we work our way through this passage is as follows. I think we have a slide for this. There you go. You can, you can make a note of this if you would like, which, I, of course, I always encourage you to do. Regardless of season or circumstance... The presence of the Lord and His steadfast love guides and sustains Joseph, regardless of season. Or circumstance. Now, we're going to observe a number. In fact, we're bookended really in Genesis 39 with positive circumstance for a younger son who has been sold into slavery and is now living in Egypt, right? We've got to remember kind of what's going on in the in the hole, right? Like positive circumstance, things seem to be going relatively well to at the end, we observe what we would describe as a negative circumstance. And yet we still see the reaction of Joseph being shaped by the present of the Lord, regardless of season, regardless of circumstance, this is a reality that we as God's people must grasp. Okay, I'm articulating it uh, over and over and over again here in the beginning because if we don't walk away with a clear understanding of this from the Joseph narrative, the fact that that in difficult season and turbulent season and seasons that seem to be going well when circumstances are going well or they're not, if we don't walk away understanding that in this story the presence of the Lord and His steadfast love guides and sustains Joseph, then there's no way we're going to walk out of this room this morning going, okay, regardless of circumstance, regardless of season, the steadfast love of the Lord is indeed most faithful and it will guide and inform my response as I live and bounce around, right, in a very sinful and broken world, okay? That's why we're emphasizing this. Major emphasis on the presence of the Lord and His steadfast love guiding and sustaining Joseph. The encouragement through it all is this, take heart, take heart, God is with his people, okay, that's the encouragement, there's an emphasis on the presence of the Lord, we're going to observe this in a number of other places, there's this emphasis on his steadfast love, that's a line that we see tucked away here in Genesis 39, that you and I need to do everything we can to mine out this morning, Because we need to understand this. We need to understand the presence of the steadfast love of the Lord. And it's sustaining God's people, which leads us to take heart, understanding that God is indeed with us. Okay? So that's where we're going. Does everybody feel good so far? Awesome. Thumbs up from Simon. Thus we will continue. Observation number one from Genesis 39. We've got two of them, so hang with me. Observation number one. Neither season nor circumstance determine or dictate the presence of God with His people. Neither season nor circumstance determine or dictate the presence of God with His people. Let's leave this up here for for just a moment. Coming into verse 2, our expectations are quickly subverted. We find for the first time this emphasis on relationship. Relationship between Joseph and the Lord. Look with me at verse 2. Verse 2, Moses writes this. He says that the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord, that is, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Get this, eight times, eight times in 23 verses, God is referred to by his covenant name. This is huge. Okay, this is, this is massive. This is intended to shape our understanding of who this God is. Eight times 23 verses God is referred to by his covenant name. This is important because we don't see it again until Genesis 49 as Joseph lies dying in his bed. Four of those eight times God's name is used to drive home his position. Four times out of those eight, God's name is used to drive home God's position. Consider this, Joseph has been hated by his brothers. He has been chastised by his family, stripped and sold into slavery. And while this might have been the picture that we are left with in Genesis 37, so we're moving back a little bit. While this is the picture we're left with there, it is not the picture that we see as we come into Genesis 38. As we come out of Genesis 37 and we see all of the events that I've just described transpiring, we might be left with this picture in which God's presence seems to be, at least for a period of time, absent. However, as we come into Genesis 39, we find that that is indeed not the case. Instead, we see the covenant God of Abraham. Right, The the creator of the heavens and the earth with Joseph. Now let's step back for a moment and let's consider how this applies to our lives. The way that we think and the way that we understand and process. Perhaps you are here today and you have felt the weight of abandonment. Or this feeling of being disenfranchised or forgotten. Maybe you're here and you know someone else who has felt the weight of abandonment or rejection. What a lonely feeling, right? What a difficult and and challenging place to be. These first few verses inform the message of God to the broken heart. Or has your heart been broken? Has your heart ever been broken? Have you ever felt as though you were cast aside? As though you were left unto yourself and to your own devices? I and mean, the message of God to the brokenhearted is this. Those experiencing broken relationships... Those wrestling and struggling with feelings of forgottenness and abandonment. The message of God that we observe through these first few verses is this. I will not leave you. Right? I won't leave you. Everyone else may leave you, right? Like, your circumstances may tank. Life may be indescribably difficult for you. Even as we sit here, you're going, holy cow. Like, I feel like the world has its boot on my throat and I am all alone. These first few verses make it clear that our God is a God who remains committed by way of his presence, his position to and with his people. Not only will I not leave you, God says, but I'll go one step further. And there is a step further. Right. Not only will I not leave you, but I will pursue you. Now, those are two very different things, aren't they? Right. It's one thing to say, hey, man, I am with you. It's another thing to say, if you go astray, not only am I with you, but I'm coming after you. Right. I'm I'm pursuing. I'm pursuing you. Seeds are planted here in Genesis 39. But as we consider the entirety of the redemptive narrative, we see in Jesus, God's entering into human history. To what? To to give his life as a ransom for many. In his kindness, God pursues and, and buys us back in the most incredible way possible. He became a man and walked among us and and died for his people. Let that sink in for a second. In this act of compassion, which it most certainly is, and, and mercy, Jesus opens access to the Father so that those who were once far off Right, those who were once absent from his presence might be brought near, might draw near. This is what the author to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can practice obedience to the call of the author to the Hebrews in chapter 4 because we have been sought. Because we have been pursued. Because God says, I'm not only with you, but I'm coming for you. I am seeking after you and I am drawing you back unto myself. God so desires that we, as his people, let's just talk as the church for a moment, right? That we would grasp an understanding of his presence, that it occupies real estate. In the last instruction of Jesus to his friends before he ascends to the Father, what does he say? Matthew chapter 28. If you grew up in church, right? If you're at all familiar with church, if you can, if you can wage your way to a church, you're probably familiar with this. Go and tell people about this, right? This, that you, have, that you have seen, right? That I have told you. Tell them what I have said. Tell them what I have done. I'm summarizing here Matthew chapter 28. Knowing what? This is the part that I feel like I skip over a lot. Like I know that it's there and I know that I need it, but I think I skip over it a lot still too, right? Because I get so stuck on that instruction there in the first part that I forget totally uh, about like the, the gasoline that drives the engine that comes up there at the tail end. Go and tell people, right? Tell them what I've said. Tell them what I've done knowing that I will be with you. God's connection, his position to us is intended to comfort and equip us for life. Did you get that? God's connection, his position to us is intended to comfort us. It's intended to equip us for this life. The message of God to us this morning through his word is as follows. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, I care for you. Psalm 23, I shepherd you. Psalm 27, as a cast out, know that I have taken you in. Psalm 55, are you guys getting this? Right, I will sustain you. Psalm 118, I am on your side. This is drawn out through Genesis 39 as we observe it being manifest in the life of Joseph. But it's not limited to Genesis 39. These realities echo through the entire narrative. And so let's consider yet again, let's step back and let's think about application as we consider the presence, the position of God to his people. If you feel marginalized this morning, you need to know that we worship a God who steps into the world to seek you in Jesus. To save you from your sin as he this is incredible, saves you to himself. You need to know that in Jesus, you are not alone. Church, you need to know and you need to, to hear that, that in Jesus, you are not alone. You are not abandoned and you are not left to yourself. Man, it has been such a sweet week in Genesis 39, just, just like being pounded with these realities. Because I'm not immune to difficult weeks, right? Like you're not alone in difficult weeks. You're, you're not alone in difficult circumstance, right? Like it extends, it extends out, right? It impacts us all. And so, so, man, one benefit of being able to open God's word and to feed God's people with it on Sunday morning is that I'm forced to feed myself with it all week. And man, what a sweet word it has been. As God's people, we have the unique opportunity. We have the unique opportunity to assist in forming this understanding in those around us who do not know Jesus. We have been pursued in our wandering. And now, consequently, as a result, wake up, hear this, we pursue after and befriend the wandering. Do you see how that works? Do we see how that how that happens? How, how we, we recognize that in the gospel, all the things that we have just said are true, that God pursues after the wandering and rebellious heart. He saves us from our sin to himself, shaping now the way that we go about suing after and befriending other people. The gospel informs every rhythm of life. Did you know that the gospel informs your your understanding of friendship and developing friends and loving people in your community and coworkers and those who are difficult to love? Well, it does, right? And if we don't step back and see gospel implication and connection for the entirety of life, man, we are drastically shortchanging that which God desires for his people and how we live our lives. Are we together so far? Is everybody okay? Let's catch our breath. Take a breath. Here we go. We've got more to talk about. We've been pursued, and now we pursue after and befriend the wandering. We, we love them with the love of Jesus. A love that desires to accomplish a number of things. Number one, it communicates value. We pursue others with the love of Jesus, a love that desires to speak the gospel into the lives of the broken, longing to see God draw to himself. But get this, a love that is committed to serve and care, even if that's not what God does. Did, did, you, did we catch the distinction there? We had a great conversation in our DNA this past week about this this very thing. Let me, let me say this statement again, right? We, we love people with the love of Jesus, a love that desires to communicate value. We love people with the love of Jesus, a love that desires to speak the gospel into the lives of the broken, longing, praying, petitioning God to draw to himself. But we love others with the love of Jesus that is a love that is committed to serve even if God chooses not to draw unto himself, right, so when is it over, when is the end game, when do we stop loving, when do we stop pursuing, when do we stop serving all to the glory of our great king, here it is, never, (laughs) right, holy cow, never, we don't, because we recognize the the patience and the persistence by which God has pursued after us, that he's loved us in our wandering, that he has sought us, as we, have, as we have fleed and now we commit to that work regardless of what happens, regardless of, of how everything shakes out. To which I hear so many people respond, I don't even know what to say, <laughs> right? Where do I start with my coworker, to my friends and family, to my neighbor? Where do I start? What do I say as I pursue after and seek to share the gospel? Maybe at first you don't say anything. Or maybe at first you just, you just listen. This past Wednesday, a few of us um, went out to the neighborhood the neighborhood around the church, right? Like all of these various streets and, and pockets and communities that exist within just a mile of this very building. We went out and we took with us our camp cards and we took these white cards that I gave to you to, to let people know that we were, that we were here, and to let them know that we, that we loved them, to let them know that Jesus loved them. We went out and uh, and there were there were a few of us and I kind of just went off like I just I broke away. It's the rebellious spirit within me, man. I just like I broke off and I kind of went. And I did my I went my own own way and did my own thing. And I met a couple of guys who were hanging out on their porch um, and I introduced myself to them. I told them I was a pastor and I and I wanted to meet the people who lived our in our community. And then you know what I did next? Here's what I did next. I just listened to them talk, okay? I just listened to them talk. I listened to real stories that they had about being black in culture. I listened to real stories about racism that they had experienced that had been directed toward them over the course of the last 50 years. One of the gentlemen Who did a majority of the talking, continued to provide illustration and example after illustration and example. To which the other would periodically ask me, Do you hear what he's saying? Right are you are you listening do you understand what he is saying to which I replied yes the more that I've considered my response in that moment in actuality I'm going I'm hearing your words but I am not altogether familiar with your experience like I'm just not and it would be unfair and unwise to believe that I that I am but I did reply yes and that's all I said I wanted, I wanted to meet these men and to let them know, again, that I love and care for them. Again, that Jesus loves and cares for them. They get, but that conversation was preceded by me listening to what they wanted to tell me. Because these were some guys who you could tell just felt like no one had listened to them in a really long time. We listen, and then we say things like, informed by, let's tie back to Genesis 39 here. Informed by what we see in Genesis 39, I see you, I care for you, and you are not alone. As God's people, we ought to be able to make statements like this because we understand that we have been seen, that we have been cared for, and that we are not alone. Now, here's the reality. This does not require a Bible college degree or 20 years of walking with Jesus. Do you know what this requires? It simply requires a new heart, right? It requires a a new perspective, reliance on the spirit of God, his presence and a desire to really submit to and live out the gospel. This will result in a degree of uncertainty in our days and for our lives. Isn't it super convenient then that through Genesis 39, we see amid uncertainty that our promise-keeping God works to accomplish his mission here through Joseph. We see it in verses 4 through 6. Let's continue on. We've got a lot of ground to to, to make up here, right? Beginning in verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his, that being Potiphar's sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had. From the time uh, he made him overseer in his house, and, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Make note of that. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate through the promotion of joseph those around him become beneficiaries of the promise made to abraham in genesis chapter 12 which we observe a partial fulfillment of here in genesis 39 what does god say to abraham in genesis 12 he says i'm going to bless you right so that you might what be a blessing Right, So that others might be blessed through you. I will bless those, the Lord says, who bless you. Potiphar benefits as he is able to trust everything but the food he eats to Joseph. Potiphar's wife benefits as we will see as Joseph rejects her invitation into immorality. Instead, electing to suppress sinful action by literally running away. This will be a theme that persists through Joseph's story. A theme that reminds us that as I heard it said this past week, good men are the blessings of the places they live. Transformed people, gospel people are blessings of the places that they live. So the question that we must ask ourselves is this, are we blessings to the places that we frequent? Right. Would your coworkers describe you this way? Right. Would they describe you as a, as a blessing? Would your neighbors describe you to their friends as a blessing, whether they're believers or not? Would your unbelieving neighbor standing in the yard with a number of, of his or her other friends look across the road as you walk out, get in your car and proceed to leave and go, dude, that guy is awesome right? That girl is awesome. Like she is a, like, she loves us well. She serves us well, right? Somebody stole my lawnmower last week and they let me borrow theirs. It was incredible, right? Would your waitress or, or waiter describe you as a blessing or a massive irritation? What's the message as they go back into the kitchen? Holy cow. Table three, y'all, I'm about to un- come unglued, right? Is that, Right, is that the Is that what the conversation looks like? Let's go a step further. Do we structure our lives and our rhythms in a way in which we have opportunity to bless others? Do you frequent the same places in an effort to know the people, to love the people, to serve the people, and to share Jesus with the people? If not, what needs to change? What do you need to, to sacrifice? What do you need to shift in order to see this change takes place? As a church plant, you guys can quickly look around and realize that we don't occupy office space in this building. Right, during the week, I don't have a, uh, an office here that I'm able to come to and get work done. And so consequently, I've spent much of the last few years in coffee shops, to which some of you guys like to give me a hard time about. It's cool. Hey, I can take it, Right. In doing so, I've had an incredible opportunity, a major benefit of being able to build some great relationships with people. This past week, one of the baristas that I've enjoyed a friendship with over the course of the last four and a half years worked her last shift before moving to Arizona, and on her last day, uh, Matt Schreiner knows right this. So every Monday morning we show up early. She opened up Gallery Row every every Monday morning as we would show up to to engage in conversation around the word and coffee. As we showed up last Monday, she gave me a card for Cordy and I, just to say like thank you for like like. Like loving me well, like for being here and, to, and, for, and for being a blessing. She didn't say it that way, but that's what it looks like, right? That's what we're, That's what we're talking about. She invited us to her going away party. Of course, we went. It was super sweet and it was super sad. And you go, what in the world is your point about all this? Here it is. My point here is that the gospel… Right, This great display of God's pursuit of His people for the purpose of blessing them has to, for the Christian, shape the way that we interact with the world around us. This is the practicality of the gospel for daily life. Do those who are in your life for a season before transitioning say things like, I'm going to miss you or thank you before they leave? Even if they don't believe in the same things that you do. Because you have sought to love and serve them as an apologetic of the legitimacy of the power of the resurrection. Joseph occupies a coveted position. And the Lord is with him. What we find as his circumstances undergo a shift... Is the continued presence of the Lord, which leads us into our second observation, which is much shorter. So hang with me. And that is this, that the steadfast love of God guides his people, sustaining them through difficulty. Look with me at verse 6. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. What is Moses articulating to us here? He's saying this, Joseph is super good looking. This is the same language used to describe his mother Rachel in Genesis 29. Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. Is everybody still with me? 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. He was a slave who has now come into a lot of responsibility. He is attractive, his hormones are likely raging, and there is plenty of opportunity. He's a long way from home, surrounded by idolatry and a radically new perspective on promiscuity. Sounds a lot like college, doesn't it? In verse 7, we see three simple words from Potiphar's wife that will in one way or another drastically alter Joseph's trajectory. And those words are, lie with me. Joseph has two options. Option number one, engage with Potiphar's wife and possibly, as a result, fast track his career. Or reject her advances for the sake of righteousness and run the risk of consequence that comes with rejecting Potiphar's wife. His response is recorded for us in verses eight and nine Look there with me, lie with me. He refuses. He refuses and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. Listen to this. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Everything leading up to that statement leads one to believe that he is going to say something like this. Man, Potiphar has been a stellar guy, right? Like, he has he promoted me. He has entrusted me. Things are going really well for me. Why in the world, then, would I sin against Potiphar? But that's not what Joseph says, right? He says... How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. Joseph rejects her offer and would continue to reject her offers. Verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Man, humanity's struggle against sin is put on full display through this interaction. There is a persistence at play here. Persistence that requires perseverance. Persistence in Potiphar's wife's advances that require from Joseph perseverance in rejecting so that he might continue in the pursuit of righteousness. Right, a, a perseverance that we will take hold of only when we come to understand sin in the same way that Joseph does. What we observe from Joseph, hear this, what we observe from Joseph here in terms of his persistence in his pursuit of righteousness is something that he is able to, to grasp tangibly because of his position on sin, because of his perspective on sin. A perspective articulated well by John Wesley. As he considers the interaction between the characters in this story. When he writes of Joseph's mental process. Saying, how can I sin against God? Not only how shall I do it and sin against my master, my mistress, myself, my own body and soul. But primarily against God. Listen to what. Listen to what Wesley says. He says this, gracious souls look upon this as the worst thing in sin, that it is against God, right? That it is against his nature and his dominion, against his love and his design. It's here that we find the chief reason that we hate sin. It's here that the Christian finds the chief reason for rejecting sin, for fleeing sin, because it is an act of cosmic treason against our divine creator. His design is perfect. His love is perfect. And our sin is ultimately directed toward him before anyone else. This is our primary motivation for repentance. Right. This is our primary motivation to fight sin. This past week, I went on a run uh, one evening, and it was uh, it was it was late. It was nighttime, and I was uh, I was going over the South Street like overpass, the bridge right there. You guys know where I'm talking about. Um, and as you come over the bridge, there's a number of residential houses right there on the right. And as I was running by one, there was a, a little dog that had like wandered out like to the edge of the yard, like a little Chihuahua, right? One of these types. And, um, and so I'm running, and I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not breathing too hard. Like, I'm feeling pretty good, doing pretty good, right? I'm, I'm stealthy, a little stealthy apparently, because I get close enough to where the dog like turns around and catches notice, and he jets. I mean, bolts the other direction. He was just hanging out on the edge of the yard, right? And then here comes this guy like lumbering by, dog catches notice, and he takes off. It's a bit of a silly illustration, but as I was running and I was thinking about what we see here in Genesis 39, I'm thinking, man, may that be my response to sin. Right? That that it's it's crouching and it's creeping and it's hanging out and I'm just doing my thing. And then I look up and I catch it and I am out. That's what we observe here from, from Joseph to a certain extent, isn't it? In verses 11 through 18, we read of Potiphar's wife's attack on Joseph, his retreat and her manipulative response to his rejection. As Potiphar himself is brought in on all of this, leading to Joseph's seizure and imprisonment recorded for us in verses 19 through 20. And through it all, verse 21, the Lord remains by Joseph's side. Extending steadfast love and favor, even as he finds himself falsely imprisoned. To the point that, verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. We begin front end and back end. There's this emphasis on the presence of the Lord. And whatever he did, the Lord what? The Lord made it successful. This chapter is bookended with the presence of the Lord, only as we come into the chapter, we find Joseph occupying this desirable position. We read through and we see circumstances change. And as we look at the conclusion, we find Joseph in what we would describe as an undesirable position. He's now imprisoned. But what do we learn about the presence of the Lord? He's still there, isn't he? Like he's, he's with Joseph and he is, he is working these circumstances for Joseph's good and the glory of his great name. We get this sense that even now there is this joy set apart and secure from crashing waves of difficult circumstance. Why? Well, because of God's presence with Joseph. Scripture is clear that that all of life, and principally the gospel life, is about being in God's relational presence. When we push all of our peripheral issues to the periphery, to the side, this is all that is left. And what we find is that it is in fact all that matters. What is most important, right? What is of of, of preeminence importance in your life? If you were to sit here and you were to make a list, what would that list look like? And at what point would the presence of God find a home, right? What we're finding through this narrative is this desire from the Lord to, through circumstance, bring us to this realization that he is all that we need. Right, that come what may, regardless of circumstance, loss, right, difficulty, hardship, persecution. Regardless of, of what this looks like, the ever-present presence of the Lord serves to, get this, secure joy for the Christian. We've got to be a joyful people because we experience the presence of the Lord residing within us. The Spirit of God who moves into the neighborhood and takes up residence in us. The presence of God is all that matters. It is the chief purpose of the work of Jesus. Sinners saved, rescued back into the presence of God. But not before He would send His presence to live in us. So that we could, through the speaking of the gospel, save other sinners into His presence But not before sending his presence to live in them. Do we get the the idea? It's just this big circle. right? God accomplishes these purposes and he, he saves sinners as the gospel is proclaimed. He breaks hearts and opens eyes to realization. Leading one to grab hold of the cross of Christ and the joy of the resurrection. We've got to get this. We've got to get this idea. Sin hinders our experience with God's presence. Jesus saves sinners ensuring unhindered experience with God's presence. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. What do we see? Prior to, we see this enjoyment of presence with God. (laughs) Sin interrupts that. Sin breaks that. God promises, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring about restoration and redemption at great personal cost, but I'm going to bring you back. All sad things will ultimately come untrue, and you will indeed reside with me again. Sin interrupts presence. Jesus brings us back into presence. We get a taste of this here, right? We we feel the Spirit working in us, but the battle against sin continues. As we draw to a conclusion, let's, let's rest in this understanding, right? That the covenant promise of Jesus includes his return for us. The final judgment of evil and unhindered, uninterrupted enjoyment of God's presence. We will eat together with our king who makes all this possible through his blood. A king who identifies with us and and redeems us, transforms us, and then reclines with us. Man, presence and and posture. It is a beautiful picture that we are able to observe as as we read not only through Genesis 39, but as we consider the entirety of the redemptive narrative. And so how does this inform our response? Two aspects that I want us to highlight. I want us to consider first our response in thought, and then I want us to consider our response in action. In thought, we already touched on it. What does Genesis 39 drive us towards? Man, it drives us towards this this heart, taking heart as we live reliant on the presence of God through his spirit are you living reliant right we're even asking some of these questions as we consider our thoughts are we considering a daily reliance on the lord are we considering a a daily reliance on the presence of god and his spirit within us knowing that god is with his people this is what we need to know okay we need to know this do you guys have this If you're not writing this down or taking a picture or committing it to memory, man, you are missing out. Because this is something that we've got to continue to come back to. That's our thoughts. The gospel transforms our thought. The gospel informs our thought. We're seeing it here through Genesis 39. Now, how does Genesis 39 inform our action? How does the gospel observable through Genesis 39? and form the way that we live our lives. We actually rely on the Lord. We flee from sin and to Jesus. We live mission as a conduit by which God blesses other people. We talked about what it looks like to, to, to hear the disenfranchised, and to hear the hurting, and to hear the broken, in order that we might speak the hope of a, of a reconciling gospel into the lives of those who are feeling disconnected. Are we listening? Are we talked about, about blessing? What does it look like to bless other people, to ingrain ourselves in a community so that as we go door to door to door, right, with people that we've met again and again and again, and their friends are sitting on the porch, they go, hey, here comes this person, right, a person of Jesus who loves and serves us well and shows us what the gospel looks like. As God, through the actions of his people, the proclamation of the gospel, draws sinners to himself and drastically transforms the the shape of our community. This is where we are. This is what we're thinking about. And this is what we're considering as we come to the table to take of the bread and the cup. As we take it, let's consider what this looks like in the new heaven and the new earth. Let's consider what this looks like as we indeed recline at a table with Jesus one day. Here we enjoy divine fellowship with his people and his presence residing within us. Let's consider these things as we come to the table today. Let me pray for us as we prepare to close our time. Father.